It always seems like a big mystery how nature, seemingly so effortlessly, manages to produce so much that seems to us so complex. Well, I think we've found its secret. It's just sampling what's out there in the computational universe. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here in North Devon, Matthew and George Russell. Oh yeah, baby, Stephen Wolfram. Yeah, so yeah, so again, George joins me. Hi, George. Hi, hi, good old George, the voice of the early podcasts. Yes, George, you wanted to come on because you wanted to talk about cellular automata. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that is right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or automata. How is it pronounced? Yeah, I don't know. Automata. Yes, I think that's probably better. Now, obviously, I don't think there's going to be many space podcasts this week that are going to be talking about this. Yeah, probably only a two or something. Maybe two out of the 6,722 space podcasts currently available on Spotify and other Streaming platforms. Streaming platforms. Yeah, yeah. George. Yeah. Before we go into that, I want to talk about... Um, going to the moon to look at water. Nice. Right, because um, I saw a little interesting story about a slight kind of worry about an up-and-coming mission. Do you want to hear about it? What is the worry? Well, the worry is that um, that they should perhaps fly another mission before it. But we'll get on to that. It's interesting. It's interesting. So uh, just a recap of the roadmap that gets us there. So there's, have you heard of the International Space Exploration Coordination Group? Um, no. It's the ISECG, a classic initialization. <laughs> so it's 14 space agencies. Now, I can't name 14 space agencies, but I'm pretty certain they're out there. Yeah. We've got NASA, ESA, UK Space Agency. JAXA. JAXA. ISRO, the Australians, the Canadians. The Chinese. The Chinese. Ooh, I wonder if the Chinese are involved. Anyway, they've developed a global exploration roadmap, or a GER, <laughs> that provides a framework for coordinated efforts regarding robotic and human space exploration. Right? Nice. So the whole aim of this global exploration roadmap, or the GER... <laughs> <laughs> is to expand human presence into the solar system and to understand our place in the universe. So that's pretty, you know, heady goals. Um, so, yes, at the moment, the GER is starting its um, space exploration program with uh, the existing International Space Station, or the ISS. <laughs> 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 and then that goes to the lunar vicinity, then to the lunar surface and then to Mars. So obviously that's that's like which program that NASA have at the moment? Uh, the Artemis. Yeah, that's right, Artemis. Yeah, the, the logo of the Artemis is very much got all of those elements in it. Uh, so yes, the, the recent version of the GER focuses on lunar vicinity and lunar surface, uh, introducing the Deep Space Gateway or the DSG <laughs> facility developed in lunar orbit for astronauts. Uh, so they can, basically the whole idea of the DSG, the uh, Deep Space Gateway, is that uh, astronauts can be on, on the gateway and access different parts of the moon that aren't necessarily uh, accessible by just directly going there like we did with Apollo. Right. Particularly so things like the South Pole. So... Would this be in orbit, or yeah? So it's like a, it's like a, it's like the International Space Station, except but for the moon. A, yeah, a rubbishy version that goes around the moon and, and a load more dangerous. So it will be able to adjust its orbit so that landing on different parts of the moon are more yeah. easy. Yeah. So it, it's in this, it's it's in a massive sort of um, polar orbit. No, yeah, it's in a polar orbit, but it's but it's but it's it's very eccentric as well. The orbit that it has, so it goes very close and very far out. So there's different kind of so has the highest range of yeah so it's got yeah so it's it's got good range so um as part of that artemis program you've got the gateway uh and hopefully you know astronauts will be going to the lunar surface in 2024 but i find that very hard to believe it's going to slip 26 2024 is a bit early yeah there's no way especially with all the covid and 
Yeah, well, COVID set it back, but I don't. I think it was always ambitious. But I think it's you know the ambition has at least sped it up. Maybe we will see twenty twenty six. Yeah, that's not too. They bad. said the Wright brothers would happen in a million years, and it happened the week after that article in the newspaper was posted. So, wow. Okay, that's definitely an error. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be so, fair, the, the reasoning was pretty terrible. Saying that, you know, like birds took a millions of years to evolve flight, so I suppose it's the same with humans, right? Yeah, that that's awful reasoning. <laughs> yeah, because one re- one relied on the glacial natural selection, and the other, <laughs> while as the Wright brothers relied on computational skill and science. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, um, one of the early things that they want to do as part of this this GER global exploration roadmap is to uh, is to is to go to the south pole region and look at polar volatiles what is a polar volatile is not a polar bear an angry polar bear <laughs> <laughs> that, but that would be but although that is a polar volatile no it's you know water basically so you know is there water at the polar ice caps of of uh, the moon you know and can you get your hands on it and if you can, it's really, really interesting. Why? Because that means life, right? Well, it means what? Life. Life. We're not going to see life on the moon. I don't think they're interested in it because of that. Well, it's got water on it. Surely that. Surely that. Well, yeah. I suppose. I suppose there's a chance. But it's... what's more interesting about um, ice that's found at the moon's south pole? You can make uh, fuel out of water. You can make fuel out of water. That's the, You get the gas station, which helps humans expand into the solar system. That's one. Actually, I actually think probably the more exciting is because this is like a part of the, 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 the solar system. The craters on the moon may have ice there that's existed for billions of years that you can then do experiments on and actually have some real insight into the early solar system. Nice. Yeah. So it's scientifically very, very important, but it's also very important as part of the G-E-R, which is what stands for what? <laughs> uh, there's too many of them. Uh, the Global Exploration Roadmap. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. the G-E-R. Or the GER, as I like to say. I like, yeah, the GER. There's many GERs or Germany. Sounds a bit like Germany. Um, right. It actually is Germany. If you just yes, it is German. Yes, but... it is. The, it is the letters. Um, um, but so one of the things that they're going to send, one of the things that's really important as part of Artemis, is Viper. Now, I haven't we have mentioned this before on the show? Viper is the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. A rover exploring polar, yeah, volatiles. So yes, in the next, you know, we're soon. Hopefully, in twenty twenty three, November twenty twenty three. So a couple of, only a couple of years away now, we will see a rover. It's quite a big little thing. It's like a golf cart, that that sort of size, like <laughs> a, a similar to Curiosity and uh, you know all those. It's probably I don't think it's as heavy as that because it's only four hundred and thirty kilograms. I think the, uh, Curiosity and and is 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 quite a bit bigger than that. So those the those, but you know it's it's eight feet tall. This thing. It's pretty cool, isn't it? And and about one and a half meters in length. So it's a it's a big it's a big thing. And they guess how much it's going to cost to run this thing for NASA. Is it something like? And I'll take a wild guess here: four hundred thirty three point five million dollars. That's a very good guess, isn't it? It's, it's only absolutely spot on. But you can't. <laughs> but actually, that's not the only cost, because NASA also had to give astrobotic technology in Pittsburgh. They had to give them another almost $200 million to uh, develop the sort of landing systems, the, the actual spacecraft that carries the the um, Viper to the moon and lands it on the moon. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy, that. So Astrobotic have got that contract to do that. Um, do you know what it launches on in 2023? Uh, Ariane 6. Oh, if only... No, not an Ariane 6. I don't think an Ariane 6 would be powerful enough, actually. Uh, a recommissioned Saturn V? A recommissioned Saturn V is the, exactly the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> What's a really powerful rocket that's in use today? Uh, Falcon Heavy. Falcon Heavy. Falcon Heavy goes up on a Falcon Heavy. 
Yeah. Now, I thought what was interesting is that the project manager on this is Dan, uh, Daniel Andrews, but the project scientist is this really cool guy called Anthony Collapreet. Now, he's really quite recognised for his work on Martian climate. It's like he's like a bang-out scientist, basically. He's a good, really good weather reporter for Mars. He's a very good weather reporter for Mars. But he's also uh, part of this Ames... NASA Ames uh, Lunar Robotic Program, very very influential on or science Ames. Over, or Ames, but it's Ames. <laughs> it's well, not also so. <laughs> well, so it is, it is if you pronounce it wrong. Yeah. So Viper, yes, is this rover, and it's part of the Lunar Discovery and Exploration Program managed by the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters, uh, and it's there to support. The Artemis program. So it's it's going there to see, to sort of prospect for ice before human exploration goes there, which is one of the problems that's going to come up, you'll see. Um, but Viper, do you know what a Viper is? A small kind of like medium-sized snake? Yeah, yeah. And, and in this country, we have the common Viper, but in this country, we also call them adders. Did you know that? I didn't know vipers and adders were the same thing. Yeah, in this in this country they are. I don't think a viper that you found you find in America, I think, is different. But a common viper and a common adder in this country, the same thing. Hence the joke: Why did the viper viper nose? Because the adder adder handkerchief. <laughs> what do you think? It's pretty good. Yeah, it's what my dad used to say all the time. Much. And adder's the only venomous uh, snake in Britain. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of sort of folklore around the adder. In this country, so it would have been cool if they'd come up with another acronym that that was Adder instead of Viper. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we've definitely got digressed there. Um, so yes, there there was a NASA rover concept for going to the to the moon, which has a more obvious name called Resource Prospector, but that was cancelled in two thousand eighteen and became this Viper project. Um, yeah, so the Astrobotics Griffin lander is the thing that's going to take it to the moon and that's part of the commercial lunar payload surfaces initiative or clips which is things like uh, uh, blue origins blue moon is another clips type thing is so, that the same or is it just an, an alternative no it's, it's, it's part it, of the no group. there's lots of missions that are going to be part of this commercial lunar payload services initiative so it, it, there's lots of they're going to be sending lots of different fleets of robotic uh craft to the moon to prospect and to prepare for human landing. So is this lander owned by the Clips company? No, no, Clips is like a Clips is like a, a NASA initiative. Oh, it's like a yeah, section yeah, yeah. of NASA. It's like a it's like a sort of uh they came up with a little program called Clips and and then they've been awarding money to various companies like Blue Origin and, and can, SpaceX. Can make and a commercial that lander. can make commercial stuff for this for Artemis. Right. Whereas NASA are going to concentrate on SLS and things like that. So basically, they just want to set up a commercial yeah. uh, lander for the yeah. moon. And this is one of them. And this is this will be quite a big one. Now, the Viper is going to land at the edge, the western edge of Nobile Crater, uh, which is on the moon's south pole. Uh, and it's going to try and travel like 25 kilometers over its 100-day mission drilling into ice, mapping the ice, looking at various places of light and dark and shade, etc., etc. Uh, and the reason why NASA chose Nobile Crater, and Nobile is apparently an Italian explorer who, who helped design Arctic exploration airships, which is pretty cool, isn't it? That's cool. Um, so no, Nobile is probably how you pronounce it. I don't know, but uh, but Nobile Crater. It's uh, it's got lots of different sort of uh, variety of locations there, so and that's one of the reasons why they're interested in it. Uh, it's actually easy for Viper to sort of travel across that terrain, so they chose it because of that. They chose it because there's just enough sunlight for for the rover to keep charging up its batteries using solar panels, and there's a good line of sight between the crater and Earth, which is important because what? Because if, if you lose c communication, you've got a Well, also, you've just got to get, have communication in the first place, right? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I suppose you could do the communication via the... Orbital Yeah, the, the relay. deep space gateway, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't... Or do like the Chinese did and actually send a specific 
satellite or CubeSat out that way to do the relay. Well, any Martian lander has it a subse- subsequent, uh, you know, yeah, relay orbiter, or, yeah, or relay yeah. orbiter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is one of the problems, of course, because if, if suddenly some of those pack up, then there's no way of talking to Curiosity. Well, I guess you just send another duplicate, right? And then it's slightly just, cheaper just than... Just send another. Well, it's, it's pretty difficult it's to cheaper than, just send another. It's cheaper than just, like, completely Giving up. redoing oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But what I'm saying is there's a danger of yeah. like, a couple of satellite failures and then suddenly we're, 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 we might lose contact with all the rovers on Mars, which would be a downer because mm. it's very expensive to get to Mars. Like, and to run and, run the whole yeah, thing. And remember, the launch windows only open once every four years, two years, two years, two years, a couple of years, and they get sometimes they get harder as well. Um, so it's going to enter permanently shadowed locations, and and it has to run on battery power, and then be able to drive to a sunlit area to charge up. So that that's got to be risky, right? So there's risky maneuvers that it has to do. But that's just space for you. Yeah. And it's basically it's got it's got a bunch of instruments and and a big drill. So this drill is made by this company called Honeybee Robotics, and it can drill about one meter down. And then it's got three different spectrometers that uh, that look at the samples and see, you know, read all the information about whether it's water and et cetera, et cetera. So it's 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 out there now. All the data that 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 about Nobile Crater actually comes from several missions. So you'll have heard of some of these. There's Lunar 24, there's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or the LRO, which is quite famous because it took pictures of the Apollo landing sites and things. There's the Chandrayaan-1 and the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite. So those, those missions have kind of shown that there is actually water on moon on the moon, which was actually quite a surprise, I think. Even though it's you know very thinly dotted across the Martian surface, it's there, and the whole idea is that maybe there's big chunks of water in these permanently shadowed craters, in, particularly in the South Pole region. Right. Right. So, how many of these um like perfectly shadowed craters are there? I don't know. There's quite a few. There's quite a few. Like as like a percentage of the moon's surface, I probably. Have, uh, yeah. No, tiny. Tiny. Tiny amounts. percentage of the of the moon's surface but um it means that there's a lot of it means that there's probably a lot of um ice there you know and when i say a lot there was um there was some industry uh and governmental panel of experts that reckon in the near term they could they could uh use 450 metric tons of lunar derived propellant so that's 2450 metric tons of processed lunar water which would generate a new economy of 2.4 billion US dollars <laughs> and who who would be buying the propellant then well i guess um uh, people wanting to then go on to explore the rest of the solar system but you got to hope that people are there to to buy it yeah i mean buy it or just use it as a resource that saves you money from dragging water up into you know what you don't want to do is drag rocket fuel from the surface of the earth up the massive gravity well yeah when you can when you can mine it on the moon and save loads of money doing it that way yeah i mean obviously having having uh, you know the ability to mine your fuel on the way to a trip mm. saves you a lot of delta v mm. no no absolutely but um even though this Viper mission is is absolutely, it's got the green light, absolutely everything is happening for this mission, there are a couple of scientists who are a little bit worried that they perhaps could do something more. So um, Bethany Ellman, who's a planetary scientist at Caltech, um, she actually says, she says, it's not like water ice is everywhere. The detail matters in terms of where we go remember this rover can't he's only going to drive 24 kilometers and i know the moon looks small but it's absolutely enormous right so it's it's we can't you know you don't want to make a mistake and then find nothing but then um you know anthony collaprete this this martian weatherman 
<laughs> he, he counters that and says that that's exactly why we're going. The whole point is that any new information is going to be light, enlightening, whether whether they find something or not. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why they're going. Um, but there's another scientist, Clive Neal, who's a geoscientist at uh, Notre Dame in Indiana, the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. He says that uh, it, it's it, that Viper may not even come across water. Uh, let me just make sure that I've got a good quote from him. So he, he's worried that there is this, um, there's this other, what he's basically saying, and I think what um, Bethany Elman is saying as well, is that there's another um, mission called Lunar Trailblazer, uh, which is basically um, a, a satellite that's there, is a you know, little small spacecraft that's there, to uh, prospect for water and it will actually do a sort of really good job at showing where the rover should go right and neil and elmer are both thinking that it's a real missed opportunity that that trailblazer isn't launched at the same time or before viper right so there's a little bit of a kind of you know um uh, a little bit of a you know, a bit of a ruckus, a little bit of a disagreement there. But NASA are absolutely um, adamant that they're going to store Trailblazer until 2025 uh, when it's scheduled to ride along with another unrelated spacecraft. So this is, you know, it's a completely different... Do we know what spacecraft that is there or are they just no, leaving an empty seat for in case? I, I don't know. There's probably another spacecraft that's being launched at the same time, like an Earth observation satellite or something like that. So it'll be one of those ones where a couple of are riding up on the same... Yeah, it often happens with CubeSats yeah. and things. They yeah, just yeah. shove them in the extra space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, this one isn't one... I mean, it's like Ariane 5, for example, always... Well, pretty much always has two satellites, a primary and a, and a secondary load of two large satellites basically yeah and, and i guess it's something similar is happening here they must have booked the, the the ride into space or something but nasa are reluctant even though bethany elman who is the principal investigator for lunar trailblazer says that the launch actually will be ready in february 2023 so way before viper so they could launch it um but at the end of the day laurie glaze who's the director of nasa's planetary science division basically says we absolutely have sufficient knowledge to fly the viper mission before trailblazer so nasa have gone with yep let's let's just go with viper let's not worry about trailblazer we can use trailblazer later on to get more information um and so yeah that's kind of how it's ended up what do you think i think it just seemed like I don't understand why you would have a satellite, why you'd have a spacecraft built, and then keep it in storage where when it could be useful for another mission. Yeah, it seems like the longer you have it on the moon, the better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I guess you get the boosted efficiency of putting it on the same uh, spacecraft. And uh, I think there must be something like the operations of these things are very, very hard to kind of put together there's the logistics of getting them into space in the first place all those sort of things so i guess nasa have looked into all of that and basically are saying look viper's got a good chance of finding ice so let's not worry about it be pretty annoying if they don't though right yeah but like with with um there was a mission recently with Mars that crashed the ESA mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. They said still that it was like a 95% success because yeah. they had done so much. Re- like you, even if you don't achieve the main objective, you're still, you know, getting so much information out of yeah. any mission. Well, that was the Chaparelli, wasn't it? Yeah. But, but which, you know, yeah, it did a pretty good job, but it just added to that whole thing that no one ever had successfully landed on Mars except the Americans. It's a sad uh, really. reality. But uh, Chinese have done it now since then. So uh, well done, China. Just and Ch- China did it on their first attempt. <laughs> That's how bang out they are. Right. Uh, I-, I thought we'd also talk about Lucy. Lucy was something that we covered way back in January 2017 when you were still the voice of the podcast. Wow, that's that's way back. That is way back. We're talking vintage space there. 
vintage interplanetary. Um, and it, we, we, we mentioned it because that was the week, January 2017, where Lucy and another mission called Psyche were announced as part of the uh, Discovery class missions. So they, I think they were 13 and 14 or 14 and 15 Discovery class missions, something like that. Um, and, yeah, so this Lucy spacecraft has been built. So, like, NASA uh, announced that Lucy would launch in October 2021, way back in 2019. And guess what? Next week, it's October 2021. So guess what's likely to be launching next week? None other than Lucy. Yeah, none other than Lucy. On an Atlas V401 from Cape Canaveral, SpaceX were pretty annoyed by that, by the way, because they didn't get a chance to... Um, well, I think they did. They just basically said that they could do it loads cheaper, um, but NASA just insisted on using the Atlas, so that was that, and uh, SpaceX dropped their protest. But... Even that was a little bit controversial. So, um, yeah, so Lucy has passed all its tests. It's got green light. So if you were listening to my podcast a couple of weeks ago about how NASA, how those missions progress through their various phases, A, B, C, and D, uh, it's it's got through all of those key key decision points or KDPs. <laughs> uh, it's got through all those milestones, and and yeah, so it's you know it was it was delivered in in um, October last year, uh, and then the spacecraft headed to Florida back in August, and the launch window for Lucy opens on the sixteenth of October. So NASA are going to have a virtual meeting this Tuesday, September the twenty eighth. Uh, and go over the whole mission, which is basically the Trojan asteroids that follow and trail Jupiter in its orbit around the sun. So this is all about Lagrange points. So where there's Lagrange points with Jupiter, there's all these weird Trojan asteroids that are essentially sort of stuck. It's kind uh, of like those um, places in the sea where like trash kind of piles up. Yeah, it is. Because there's no current. Yeah, it's a little bit like that because, yeah, it's where the currents are kind of balanced up. Yeah, and, yeah uh, but being pulled either yeah, side. Yeah, but so these are, these are kind of gravitational currents. Uh, L4 and L5 of Jupiter. Now, the ones, the ones at L4 are known as Greek camp Trojans. <laughs> why, why are they called Greek camp Trojans? Um, I, I guess it's because they're... It, they, I think they're sort of seen like... Um, armies that are camped out and so you've got the the greek camp and the trojan camp either oh. side of jupiter uh, uh, and they're they're these little asteroids that are going around so you've got um yeah you've got l4 and l5 well, l4 got, is your greek. greek camps oh yeah there's, there's... and the trojan camp are at l5 yeah but they're all trojans which is a bit confusing mm. why why so many uh missions toward uh, greek camp uh, I don't know, actually. That's a, that's a really interesting point. So, first of all, though, you've got um, um, it's a twelve-year mission. You know, this is going to take a long time to do. So, you know, by the time they get to some of these, it's going to be. And that's more uh, than loot than than Apollo, right? So, oh god, yeah, yeah, but but it's you know, this is common for it's common for things like These deep space missions. deep space you missions know, to take a long time. past the rocky planets. It's, yeah, you, past the rocky planets, it's going to take a long time. Measuring years, yeah. So Lucy's going to go to a, a record number of asteroids that are in separate orbits around the sun. So one of them is the first one it's going to visit. Actually, is a main belt asteroid. Uh, that's lo- lo- obviously located in between Mars and Jupiter, and that's called the Donald Johansson five two two four six Donald Johansson asteroid, um, which is about f- only four kilometers in diameter, I believe. C type asteroid. How much uh, gravity would you get out of you know these f- uh, sixty four kilometer? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much you get. Well, you could work it out. It's, it's a very tiny percentage of what you have on Earth, it, but it's enough to orbit around, presumably. Yeah, just but, really uh, slowly. Yeah. So the 20th of April 2025 is the first time that uh, Lucy will fly past an asteroid and do some um, uh, measurements, and, and it will fly by at about 900 kilometres away. So quite close, quite close. Um, then two years later... 
Lucy will get to the Greek camp. And uh, this one's a big old 64-kilometre satellite. Uh, and it's the largest member of the Trojans. And it, it, it itself has a small satellite. It has, it's moons it's, it's, within moons. It's moons within moons within moons. So yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, so that, that'll be interesting. I mean, that'd be really cool anyway. Yeah. Um, Cause I suppose at these Lagrange points, since there's no other interference, even the smallest objects can have moons. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's an interesting Even a person point. could have a moon. Yeah. You could have a little moon around a person. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, I wonder if they ever worry about Lucy herself as she flies in disrupting that delicate balance. I suppose she, compared to a four-kilometer diameter rock, has well, little yeah, but this, this, this little Keter satellite, as it's called, uh, that that orbits Eurybates, is a kilometer. It's a kilometer wide, so it's big. I suppose, yeah, it's much much heavier than Lucy. Um, and then, after visiting twenty, uh, it will very quickly a month later go and visit another. Uh, asteroid polymeal uh and which is only 21 kilometers then six months later go to another greek camp um um asteroid have a look at that swing by a few months later to another greek camp one which is massive 51 kilometers and then really cool it will swing over and take about five years, <laughs> which I think it has to come back round to Earth to do a gravity assist. Now, this is the interesting thing. No other spacecraft has gone out <laughs> to the outer solar system, to the gas giants, and, and then back. come back again. So, yeah, Lucy's got to come all the way back. Do a couple and not of even gravity- to come back, just, yeah. to, just to swing round. Just to, to get do a gravity boost, assist. Boost yeah. of a, just to come back to the same place. That's insane. To, to go the other side of Jupiter. That's, yeah. that's the orbital mechanics that's required here. So it, it, it's really interesting. So it's going to take five years, and then it will go over to the Trojan camp at L5 to have a look at uh, Petroclus, Petroclus, which is a 113-kilometre um, Trojan, which is massive, and that's got a satellite, which presumably is a bit of a binary because that's 104 kilometres. Yeah, I suppose they just say whatever's the lightest is... Um... yeah. So the pair orbit at a, uh, a separation of 680 kilometers. So there's this spinning binary of two very large objects. And these the speed of these orbits are like insanely slow, right? Yeah, I would have thought so, yeah. And so you've got this, yeah, these, these I mean, that's going to be really interesting, isn't it? So it's an ace mission, Lucy. I really like it. I, I, I think I prefer Psyche as a mission because the whole idea of an asteroid that's a great big lump of metal and potentially the core of an old planet is really cool. Like The, the prospect of asteroid mining generally is quite cool. Yeah. I mean, it is the future of resources. Well, it may be the future of resources. It does seem that way. Yeah, I mean, we'll run out of stuff on Earth eventually. We, yeah. we use it at exponential rates. And- yeah, and and I guess missions like Lucy and Psyche will go down as very useful missions in terms of having a look at what these things are like. Yeah, I suppose just it. as much as, you know, the original uh, voyages to America helped yeah. in uh, the gold mining and things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um uh yeah so that's so yeah that that's going to be flying you know that's that's one launch that i'm really really looking forward to uh and the launch window like i said opens in a couple of weeks and there's a nasa there's a nasa um press conference coming up this week about that mission so that is super super cool mission very very cool indeed um Right, what what you, what you wanted to talk about is cellular automa- automata. Automata. Yeah. Um, yes, well, we, we, we started off with a quote from this guy called Stephen Wolfram. Yeah, creator yeah. of um, Wolfram Alpha, uh, yep. Mathematica. Yeah, so Wolfram Alpha I've got on my phone. I use it to do things like, you can put in things like, what's the diameter of the moon? And it will tell you very accurately. Yeah, or you can it's say like, like diameter of the moon divided by the economy of Kenya and it yeah. would give you some results there yeah, as well. It's, it's really good. It's re- I have to say, it's a very useful little thing, particularly for finding out definite facts about space. 
yeah. is very good. So that sorry, that's one thing. He's I did well. I didn't realize he was. He's a Brit. I've always thought that Wolfram was a, an American for some reason, but he's an utter Brit. Uh, and he, yes, <laughs> I still can't get over this. He was fourteen, and he'd already written three books <laughs> on particle physics. <laughs> So at 14, <laughs> uh, he went to Oxford when he was 17, but he left because he went to Caltech, another person from Caltech. He went to Caltech to get his PhD by the time he was 20. And his PhD advisor was none other than Richard Feynman. How cool is that? That's pretty so, cool. Yes. Uh, so, and he's also the, uh, he's the youngest recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship at Caltech at the age of 21. But a space, little space fact, Wolfram helped uh, develop that kind of weird... He was he was the consultant with that weird language that's in the film Arrival. Yeah, yeah, he helped design it alongside his son. or like Yeah, his, yeah, his son and him sort of did a lot of the visualisations yeah. for it, yeah. Uh, that it's based on the Wolfram language. So Wolfram, but um, he started off as doing sort of particle physics, but he became obsessed with cellular automata or cellular automata. Now, cellular automata kind of actually started life. uh, With with the game of life. Well, no, way before that. In fact, two like absolute geniuses at Los Alamos um which have which come up quite a lot these two in spec when you're talking about space is stanislav ulam and uh von neumann of obviously von neumann comes up loads no which the von uh, neumann and, probe is named after yeah and uh stanislav ulam comes up loads as well when when you're talking about um orbital mechanics and things so you know these two came up with this original concept of cellular automata now keep gone you you give us a kind of layman's version yeah, of what I, these things are if you want to get started with like cellular automata and stuff the, the one you you look at is his game of life right conway john conway who's who's also a brit as well a mm-hmm. mathematician um and yeah it's essentially it's a cellular automata which means there is a grid of cells right and mm-hmm. each cell or square you so can like call square it. paper you yeah, yeah, you like a chess board, like a go yeah. board oh, yeah, or a chess shogi board, yeah, board yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Chess board, something like that. Uh, and then each uh, gr- square or cell is either on or off, right? Either black or white. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way it, each each uh, cell has neighbours, so I have eight neighbours, you know, the, the four orthogonal directions and the four uh, diagonal directions. You can think of this like uh, the king moves in chess. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on the number of on cells or off cells in its neighbouring cells will determine what whether or not it'll be on or off in the next generation. Yeah. So, for example, if you had... The, the rules for the game of life, for example, are if there are two or less um, cells, neighbouring cells which are turned on, then it, then it will die. Mm. Or, sorry, less than two cells, then it will die. Mm-hmm. If it has equal to three cells... And it's and it's uh, a cell which is off. Mm-hmm. Then it will be born. So if an off cell has three, uh, yeah, alive cells, then it will be born. And if it has four or more neighbouring cells, then it will die, as if by overpopulation. So you have these very simple rules. And what you'd expect from a system like this, where you have a simple initial condition, whatever whatever it might be, and simple like layout to how things work, and the simple rules, you'd expect that this would lead to very simple behavior and very simple patterns. But actually, not only is it incredibly complex, it's indecidably complex. It's in, you, you can't predict, there's no, irredu- there's no reducibility at all. It's completely computationally irreducible. And, you know, it's been proven in, within Conway's Game of Life, you can create uh, universal Turing machines within it, right? So you could run, and in fact, the people have actually done this, mm-hmm. run Game of Life in Game of Life, if you set up these cells and turn the right ones on and the right ones off in in a certain pattern, it will produce. You know, you can you can create computers which can run Windows. Like yeah. you just you, all you need is just the, the, yeah. these amount of cells. Well, so they're known as Turing Turing complete. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Turing, yeah. If something's Turing complete, it means it can run itself. Yeah, and and so yeah, so the game of life that was kind of cellular automata made popular, wasn't it? So so since like the nineteen forties, von Neumann 
version. No, it was just a, a mathematical curiosity. And then Conway made it popular in the 70s with Game of Life. And then Wolfram seems to have become obsessed with it in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> well, there's another there's another cellular automata, which is um, really important and influential as well, which give rise to something like Rule 30, for example, mm. which is... Well, these are the Wolfram... These are, yeah, the Wolfram the Wolf yeah. cellular automata, where you... You you start with a square, which you you again have a, a grid of squares. Except this time it's not two D; it's actually one D. Yeah, or kind of like yeah, one D with you're one. Just time. Moving, yeah, just moving down the the it's down the time dimension. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's sort of a one dimensional uh, time with time. Yeah, and um, essentially you start with one. You have these rules where you say, depending on what's above a a, a square. Uh, the three above it, so yeah. kind of, you can think of that as the neighbors. Yeah, it will determine its state. Yeah, so you could have a rule that was like if it has one, uh, like the middle one above it is is turned on, and the two next to that is turned off, then it will turn on. Yeah, and if you ran that on on just a just one cell turned on, you get yeah. a line that went straight down. Yeah, uh, but and again, you you would expect something so simple with these simple rules to produce incredibly simple things, yeah. uh, the things you could find patterns eventually. But again, that, that's wrong. In fact, um, Rule 30 is the most famous and it's, it's um, Stephen's favourite uh, cellular automata. Or, I th- yeah, just generally. One of his favourites. It's, it's in his top four. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's got, it's got to be in the, at least the top yeah. four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it's that gives, gives rise not only to complexity, but again, you know... Even after many decades of many people trying to find patterns in it, it's still there's nothing like there's no repeats. Yeah, that, that's no... that central line never repeats, does it? It's a bit like pi. Yeah, yeah, it's so random, in fact, or at least seemingly random. Well, he used yeah he uses it as a random number generator. It's used as a random number generator in many programs. Yeah, but even though some people object to that because the column other columns aren't random that's that's the weird thing with it isn't it yeah yeah the the side the left side of rule 30 is actually a like, repeating pattern yeah. it's, you can very easily see its repeats and but, yet the middles and and, and the, the right, and the right hand side is like completely crazy but what i love about these what i love about the patterns that are drawn so they all look like triangles because it's kind of one dot and it sort of spreads out yeah in a, but it in can a collides with others yeah. on the side and can, yeah and so but the What's awesome about it is that some of them, you know, that you can be, he puts them into different categories, doesn't it? Because some of them are simple, some of them die. Yeah, I mean, some, some of them, them are, some of them are a, a pattern that you can clearly see a pattern yeah. forming, and then some of them, like Rule Thirty, are completely diverse. And just like Conway's Game of Life, you can create Turing machines. And in fact, this uh, Matthew Cook should get a shout out here because he's one of his, one of his research assistants actually proved made actually did a proof that um that that yes that in, indeed it was a turing complete uh, process this this um rule 30 also we should m- mention um gosper as well uh creator of the gosper gun mm. gosper glider gun which in game of life is a setup of cells that can shoot in, in some ways these gliders so it's essentially creating an infinite array of of these, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, systems which can move across the board. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the game of life thing's really incredible, and I guess what's brilliant about this is that it's a really good demonstration. And I was, you know, trying to apply this to life and 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 physics and space, but I really liked the one that I read about this whole idea of say, say you look at something like a bee, and like a bunch of bees get together and they can make a, a beehive right yeah and it's like they've only got a simple set of rules but because of a one particular set of rules for some reason you get this vast complexity of a beehive yeah i mean there's no there's blueprint like a, yeah there's no blueprint for there's the no beehive. blueprint for no. a beehive in a, in a bee's mind because no. there's just not enough space for that yeah but... and, yeah exactly and the, and the bee itself has no idea doesn't and, know what a beehive is no it doesn't know what a beehive is and and therefore the complexity of the beehive is just an emergent property of a very simple set of rules. In the same way that these or these cellular automata, you get this emergent property of a rand, a totally random number sequence down the middle line. Except from it a- isn't random. That's the, that's the crazy thing, is oh. that it just appears random, but it is term- deterministic. You know exactly why each cell is the way it is. 
but you only know after you've computed it. That's that's the thing. So yeah, so, uh, there's no yes. repeats. So that's and that's why it's computationally irreducible. Irreducible because you have to run it to find it. Yeah, yeah. But then to find it, you know that it is the. Yeah, but you have to run it first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not like it's not like if you were to have a pattern that was like one three one three one three. Well, I know ex- I can you know create a formula that you'd input like what what number in that sequence hmm. you you'll have, and then it will output the uh, you know what number it will be because that's a sim- very simple pattern. But for some reason, these cellular automata are producing patterns that are just yeah exactly irreducibly complex. Yeah. But what's what's really cool is this rule thirty, for example, has a you can really see its kind of random nature and what it looks like. But it looks like things like snail shells have got this well, yeah, rule thirty that, actually drawn onto them. There because, is a snail that has rule, well, something like rule thirty on its shell, yeah, like just drawn on. Which is, yeah. <laughs> well, which, which just goes to show that that yeah that this complexity is coming from from this very simple set of rules. And yeah, scientists think that, that it, each individual cell is, you know, reading mm. the cells adjacent to it in a similar way. So Wolfram, I think, is going down this kind of path where he believes that maybe the rules of the universe itself, like why are there fundamental particles, why do we see complexity around us, why do we see galaxies and stuff like that, is again caused by like something like cellular automata and maybe you could actually describe the universe with a simple set of rules am i right in saying that well yeah yeah exactly that he has a model of that we all hear about these like universal models of physics you know that can combine all of these very various things but i think my favorite is is this uh wolfram model of physics where he has designed a cellular automata which he calls the, the most structureless structure in other words the most abstract form of these so it's dimensionless um, has a time dimension, but again, that's similar with all of these stellar automata. It's just the uh, iterating mm. of, you know, the rewriting of the state based on rules. And essentially the way it works is it's um, a graph or hypergraph. So just uh, a list of, I guess, vertices uh, that each are unique in, in the sense that they're numbered or, or lettered or lab- labeled in any way. It doesn't it is, It's completely arbitrary, the numbering. Mm-hmm. But essentially, yeah, let's say you had a vertice uh, one and uh, two and three, right? So you had three vertices mm-hmm. and you were to join them by a, an, a hyper edge. And hyper edge is just an edge which joins more than two vertices. So a, a normal edge yeah. will join two vertices. Hyper edges join three or more. So a ruler, for example, can isn't a hyper edge. It's not but a hyper one of, edge. But one of those bendy rulers you could. <laughs> <laughs> Is yeah, that like, sort of thing, like I, a piece pr- of string. Probably more like a rubber band or something. You yeah, can wrap yeah, around well, three pins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. But no, no. So, so um, and then the way you'd notate a state in this in this cellular automata is you just literally write, uh, you bracket, well, the, the way it's notated is you write brackets, and then inside those brackets, you write the three or more vertices, which is hyperedge is connected to. So in this case, I said it was one, two, three, and they're all connected. Then you have... A hyper edge, which is one, two, three, and the ordering of those numbers doesn't matter. It's just an edge which connects three things. Mm-hmm. But with this, with this very simple setup, just like with the game of life, you can actually get some pretty cr- uh, crazy things from it. So the way the rules work is as actually unlike with the game of life, um, it's only one rule. But similarly yeah. to the game of life, what it does is it says find this thing where, where this thing is true, and then if it is replace it with with this thing yeah so if you had a system that was like uh if you had three three hyper edges for example mm-hmm. that were all connected to one vertice so it's like it's a vertice is connected to itself three times and to make things simple we'll just make it normal edges right so if a vertice is called one then we'll say uh that there are three hyper edges um and it's and the hype, each hyper edge is one one right it's connected to mm-hmm. its to, to one and so you could say a rule where if you if you have an edge that is xx then that becomes uh xwx something like that for example and then what would happen there is because because um and the the way that it's found for example is 
the only these various variables that you're looking for the only thing they could be any number the only thing is anytime you have a repeat they have to be the same hmm. right so so I, if our initial condition was this this hype this uh, edge that was uh, one one then that is that is uh, that satisfies the uh, uh, xx right because one is the same as one hmm. so you found the found the thing that the rule applies to and then you just apply that rule to it so you have <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty cut george is laughing because he's seeing my face as, as as i as my mind is 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 blowing up which i hope it is at your end as well <laughs> so yeah essentially you have states of of hyper edges you find the hyper edges which which some rule is applicable to and it will be denoted by just saying okay you have mm. you know like you find find three values in a hyper edge and mm. two of them are the same or something like that and then it all it turns into something else and sometimes this can create new vertices right so you might have you know xx becomes xwx hmm. so our system of uh one one edge connecting connected to itself via vertice 1 would become um that same vertice but connected to another hmm. So you sort of get have a you know a hyper edge connecting all three or two sorry. So if I get this right, you're basically saying that and and you know you have to I'm going to row quite considerably far back to the beginning here. What you're saying is that that the emergent properties we see in the universe are potentially caused by a process similar to what you're talking about, and 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 most of the time we try and describe the universe using maths, and like the maths is things. Where we talk about things like string theory and stuff like that, yeah. and, we, and we're just basically hammering away at the universe using maths. Whereas Wolfram is proposing, instead of using maths, we use these kind of computational, computational, um, like almost like little algorithms, little algorithms at the beginning to sort of show the emergent properties of the universe. Well, is yeah. that right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the big idea in sort of the last like maybe 200 years was, you know, or for probably closer to 400 in yeah. science was we should look at like various phenomena in in, in the world mm. and then try to model them using maths. Yeah. But I guess this new idea, and this is this is why he wrote a book called, uh, you know, A New Type of Science yeah. or a New Kind, uh, something it's, like that. Yeah, it's quite poo-pooed, this book, though. It's very controversial, his, his new kind of science book. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the, the, the case with... um anything is the longer something's been running the less they're likely to adopt something new yeah no that's true but i think that he i think he has a few problems which which a lot of people oh uh, yeah i mean definitely but there but there's some big heavyweights that seem to be on his side like hoofed and all those kind of people where where they where they're sort of looking at these kind of um systems to generate the generate the rules of everything kind of thing but yeah yeah so you have these um you have these rules and, and states. And like with all of these other cellular that we've been talking about, you can have systems which produce uh, very complex shapes, hmm. as well as simple ones, obviously, because some, some rules just, just... Or no shapes at all. Some of the rules just break down. They and just, just die make, make instantly, nothing. yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if one of the rules was, you know, if this, then nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Then, yeah, exactly. It would, it would Nothing would happen. But... Um, like what some of them produce shapes and but by the way the the idea is you'd have like the these shapes like um one of the rules when applied to just a single versity verse vertice connect or vertex sorry yeah. when it's when it's singular it's vertex but a single vertex when when the rule is applied to a single vertex attached to itself uh four times yeah um it it produces a, like a very. I mean, it's the shape that's always used in the thumbnails of yeah. uh, videos and things about this, right? It's it's quite you know it's the, usually the front cover, but it, it off that's after fourteen generations, and that produces six thousand vertices, right? So we've gone from one to six thousand in fourteen mm. generations, but Wolfram says that our universe may be something like ten to the four hundred vertices. Yeah. I like the fact that you were telling me earlier on about how the speed of light might be to do with the fact that you've got well, these yeah. discrete... The fact that you've got a tick speed in the universe, because every time this up, this hypergraph updates with these rules, that's one tick, right? Yeah. And it will be something like 10 to the 48 ticks per second. Um, 
which is which is a lot of ticks. But but when you're going so fast, that actually does matter, and it means that there is a limited speed to how much how energy could go. Mm. But this 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 model solves uh, implies so many things, as in it's not added in. It just it just leads you to this to these con- to the conclusions of like general relativity, special relativity, yeah, quantum mechanics. Well, that, that's the thing. I think quantum physics, you see, is is itself via Bell's theorem, which is which is very well known and very well kind of, um, you know, this is like hyper accepted Bell's th- theorem is that uh, quantum physics and hidden variable theories are incompatible, right? You can't have this local hidden variables theory. And this sounds, doesn't it sound like a local hidden variables thing? You've got these, these like very, the, the, the structure of the universe is being caused by But they're these. not local. I know. See, they're the, fundamental. This, oh, okay. See, see uh, yeah, this is the bit that blows my mind. I don't know anywhere near enough to get down into the... Into the, but into here's, the here's another thing. It's also kind of... Has has in it its model black holes as well because you can think of black holes as like the the event horizon being a wall that that stops and en- stops um any information from from traveling. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a pocket universe in a way where it's has the same laws as our universe mm-hmm. comes from our universe, but we that there's no bridge towards them. Mm-hmm. Right, they're just they're just separate in terms of it's it's literally black. Right, you can't see anything in it, mm. and it, th- there are certain rule sets and initial conditions in this automata that that. Uh, that's been fa- that Stephen has uh, been found, which actually leads to like branches completely going off the main uh, mm. group. So, so there will be vertices which aren't connected in any way, in any route to other vertices. Now, could it be we we have a genius in Stephen Wolfram, who, like maybe string theorists, have accidentally gone down completely the wrong path. <laughs> But like you, you, you kind of have to try. Right? Yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not having to go at them. But I mean, also, it's, it's, it's also it's, what if? Yeah, like, because it's amazing. I mean, it. It's, if you find a cellular automata, yeah. which or just an automata generally, because I guess this isn't even cellular. So no, there's no mm. geometry. Yeah. If you find an automata which perfectly describes our universe, even if it's not actually what's happening, it's got to be useful. It's still. <laughs> If something if something perfectly describes if, if a process perfectly describes the way that everything, mm-hmm. then like how how different is it to to being true? Mm. Oh man, yeah, I, it's it's yeah. I think yeah, this is one of those things, isn't it? Where where it's it's it seems like a really great idea and 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 seems to have a real insight but has cellular automata been actually useful in anything other than a pseudo random number generator or or, or yeah well it's used in modeling physics for example there are um there's a cellular automata which models fluid simulation for example yeah and that's been reasonably successful hasn't it well yeah it's used in video games and in, in movies and things there there are other alternatives of course but it's just it's nice to know that there there are that it's, that it's achieved something. Yeah, yeah, that, that something's come out of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, it's but I guess it never really was a, a practical thing. It's more like a lot of it's used for analogy, and you know, the other it could it it could literally be like the entire universe is one instead yeah. of it being a practical thing. Do, do, I'm I'm going to finish. The thing that was blowing my mind was the fact that this that the humans themselves. Our society, our society, kind of acts like, like this kind of emergent property as well. That like you think we're humans are running a simple set of rules, and then it all comes together, and and maybe society is like a rule one twenty of a of a of a human automata, and it's just like that. That's what's frightening. But I I, I really liked as well because you sort of sent me down this path. I found this guy called Adam Block, who's an astrophotographer, and he'd written a code that basically using um, using cellular autonomy and and kind of based on John Conway's Game of Life, he managed to recreate a spiral galaxy in code, so so that the the spiral arms were being formed 
because of the way that the, the these simple yeah these simple simple rules and he managed to find a way of just generating these things so i'll, I'll put a link to that because it's really really cool yeah, another galaxy thing- simulation f- via sort of game of life seems to be hints that there's that they're onto something a little bit right i mean oh definitely yeah yeah and but if if people are wondering like how does space or like dimensions come out of a dimensions dimensionless structure uh and i think it's sort of hard to like think of mm. uh but essentially at least at least you know from the li- limited amount that i've read on this yeah you, if you define you can define the the number of dimensions as as you, you well first you've got to generalize like some sort of equation for mm. the number of dimensions in any given space so in our own uh, if you had a grid in 3D mm-hmm. and you 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 start at any point, it's completely arbitrary, and you go out. So it's like a grid, but it's a box of grids. So yeah, like, yeah, like it's like a box of strings and wires going across. Yes. Imagine, yes. yeah, imagine like just a just a regu- like a 3D chessboard. Yeah, like know? I guess like Lego, like a big massive Lego block. Yeah. Like yeah, just like a, a grid, a 3D grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah. a 3D. Grid. Just a three. A just lattice. a 3D. Grid. Yeah, a lattice. There <laughs> That's we the go. Word. There That's we go. The word. Lattice. Lattice. So you have a lattice. And you you take any points and you and you from that point you you branch outwards right mm-hmm. and you you basically look at how many new uh, vertices have you selected from branching out one um, joining mm-hmm. one one edge right so you keep going across these edges one step at a time and you measure how many more or how many new vertices you've 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 gone to you've you can select from that distance. And in our own universe, that's inverse square, right? Because at least it averages to that. It approaches the inverse square. Yeah. Because eventually what you end up having is is something, if you go for like a million steps. Yeah, you end up with a sphere. Basically a sphere, yeah, yeah. Which is pi r squared, and that's where you no, get no, your okay. inverse. No, no, four-thirds pi r cubed. Yeah. Oh, four-thirds pi No, but it's the surface area, isn't it, if it's inverse square? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. The surface, so you measure the surface. Either way, you can, yeah. use, you can use the area or you can use the... Um, volume. The volume. Uh, the volume. The area or the volume, yeah, surface area or volume. Either way, it, you get the same. You come to the same conclusion. But and you and you look at two D, for example, and it's a similar thing. Um, and with this, you can kind of generalize how what demen- what different dimensions lead to what different ratios of um, of this dimension, right? Mm. So. Uh, and with the game, with with this um, with this cellular automata, because because you have these vertices connected with edges and hyper edges and things, you can count the uh, you know you can take any point and measure the average mm. sort of gain in vertices as you step out from that. And with that, you can you can have this generalized view of dimensions and measure how many dimensions that universe will have. Oh, it's blown my mind. <laughs> Anything else to add to? cellular automata that it's fun isn't it it's a fun thing but it's yeah. just like one of those it's one of those branches of science you think is it is it a dead end or is it or there's is only one way to find out there's only one way to find out and let's go down it i guess it's the um you often see this this moaning that perhaps science is a little bit too conservative sometimes and and maybe that there's too many people um hanging on to the things that they kind of love and it takes someone like Wolfram or someone like Weinstein or one of these other crazy people who who seem to be banging on about a theory of everything um, to kind of upturn it. But let's see who does it. I mean, we're kind of waiting for a breakthrough, aren't we? Yeah. But we, we need the next Einstein, really. Yeah. Because that's kind of where we're waiting, isn't it? I do need to give a shout out to Bert Chang as well. I believe that's his name. Um, he made a continuous cellular automata that actually gives right. He he's basically he's studying the biology of a universe he created essentially. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally a, a living beings he's discovered in his own cellular automata. Oh my god! <laughs> right, it's a it's a continuous one. But they so have, basically, he's lost in his own world. Yeah, this guy. he's he's but he's th- there are creatures in this in these uh, automata which can self-repair and self-replicate and move across, you know, and react to stimulus. Wouldn't it be weird if some of them have become self-aware in the program? I don't think they're quite that complex. I mean, they are just well, like... Well, who knows? 
what is consciousness, George? Let's let's go down that route, or let's not, because we're going to have to wrap this up. Oh, the it's consciousness a- thing of uh, set of the uh, Wolfram model is it gets pretty crazy. I, I recommend you you go onto Wolfram's blog and and look at that because it's just- what we well, actually models consciousness in it as well. Oh yeah, yeah, it models no, everything. Joking. No, no, no. <laughs> look, because here's the thing I forgot to mention is you may have been thinking, well, what if this rule applies to multiple sets of edges of hyper edges? Oh, that's what definitely what I was thinking. It's what you were thinking, wasn't it, listener? Yeah, it was, it was definitely what they were thinking. They're thinking, hold on, George, when you've explained this to me, you didn't take into account the fact that it could apply to multiple sets of hyperedges. Well, if it does, that there is this weird thing about consciousness and and how the updating order kind of doesn't matter. Uh, oh, no. I mean, I don't, I, I really, it's like really, Well, yes, it it's... gets so hard when it's sort of in this, this consciousness, consciousness stuff. I don't, yeah, it's. It, I, oh. I just recommend you look into it yourself because it's really, yeah. it gets crazy. But no, yeah. it's it's a really good one to to look at the Wolfram model, oh. even for fun, you know. Do you know? You know, we were talking about uh, no Billy crater. There's actually a no Billy cellular automata as well, <laughs> <laughs> automata as well. I don't think it's related though. Yeah, probably not. No. Um, right. Um, um, Oh, unless it is. Oh, no, no. This other Nabili is spelt with a, an I at the end rather than an E. Um, right. George, if people are interested in the Interplanetary Podcast and our crazy musings for the day, uh, where should they go? Well, we f- Before that, okay. we have to mention the number oh, of this podcast. Right. Oh, yes. 256. That's two to the power two to the power two to the power two. Yeah, it, it's an 8-bit podcast, yeah. as they say. It's the max value you can store on 8-bit. Yeah, 256. It's actually, 256 is the bit rate that I actually do this podcast at as well when, wow. when I'm converting to MP3. It's meta. It is meta, isn't it? So it, I won't get confused when I convert it this time because I sometimes get confu- I sometimes put the episode number in when I'm supposed to be putting the um, 256 in. But this time, better put it both. Mm. Well spotted. It's an 8-bit podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, that's it. So, yes, where where should they go to if they're interested in 8-bit podcasts? Uh, they should probably go to, like, www.interplanetary.org.uk. That's exactly right. And if they're super into it, you should go to patreon.com yeah. forward slash interplanetary. Oh, nice. Good work. Good work. And absolutely massive shout-out to all the patrons out there. Uh, thanks very much for supporting the show without it it would be absolutely awful hopefully we've got some good interviews coming up over the next few weeks and actually there's ESA Open Day which I'm going to be involved with so hopefully uh, there'll be some awesome content coming out of that as well so I look forward to that we'll see see how that all pans out so see you next time Uh... Stan